that called uh, our Father, Creator of the Universe. We thank you today that you have not left us in the dark about who you are and what you are like. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word today, we pray you help us to understand it and put it into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name. I want to start today by reading you a short passage out of 1 Peter, just a couple of verses, but I want you to listen carefully and react to it in your mind, what comes to mind as you hear this. It's written by Peter, one of the original followers of Jesus Christ, to a group of scattered Christians around what was then called Asia Minor, now we call Turkey in the ancient world. This is it, ready? You have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, rebels, carousing and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation and they blaspheme. Now apart from some of the perhaps quaint words, excesses of dissipation, that's kind of wasted kind of living what was your reaction now some of you may have reacted quite uh, strongly to that Uh, you may be all too aware that you used to live a certain way before you became a Christian and now you don't live that way and your relationships have become a bit awkward as a result because you don't join in the activities with the group like you used to and it's noticed. So maybe you related to it quite strongly. Although some of you may have thought just what I expect from Christianity. Moralising. This is holier than thou. Uh, party pooping, oppressive, kick the rules kind of religion that Christianity is. That's what we'd expect. You no longer join in that. They're, they're hopeless. Don't live according to the world, be different. Maybe you had that, this is holier than now kind of Christianity. Maybe you had that kind of reaction. Or maybe you were just worried about when you had the notes for this afternoon's lab and didn't hear much of it at all. It went straight over your head. The whole idea of difference for Christians may be a new idea. How, what kind of view of Christians does Peter have to be able to say that statement? You used to live this way, you now live differently, and what's more, not just live differently, you get a hard time for living differently. You get maligned, you get slandered for doing it. What, what sort of Christianity is that? Where does it come from? You may not have even thought about the difference in living that Christianity brings. And today we're going to explore that issue of difference in 1 Peter particularly. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's important to understand why it is that Christians live differently. Why Christians think that values and virtue and character and behaviour actually matter. Why it is that Christians will not do things that seem perfectly harmless, maybe even self-evidently pleasurable and personally authenticating. Why is it that they don't join in with those things? Why do they resist self-fulfilment and pleasure as the key values which govern behaviour and life's activities. This is an important issue. Why are Christians to be different? 
if you're not a Christian, uh, but obviously if you're here perhaps interested, it will help you to understand your Christian friends, but also get to the heart of what it is to be a Christian. The heart of Christian faith, because it's not primarily a moral code. It's about a relationship, a changing, a life-changing and enriching relationship with the living God. This idea of difference is a theme of the letter. Remember, Peter is writing to encourage a scattered group of Christians who are being persecuted. And it needs to be a theme for them because they're getting a hard time because they're living differently. He's got to explain this somehow. He's got to deal with this issue of difference. Why? To encourage them in it. They're getting maligned for it. One of the most uh, common descriptions Peter uses of his readers is exiles. He calls them exiles or, or temporary strangers. It's a metaphor, isn't it, that captures this idea of difference, of not fitting in somehow. Uh, I would be a bit like a, an exile if you found me at a dance party. Now I've got some pretty cool moves. <laughs> really sick booze on the, on the dance floor. I think he'd probably pick me at a dance party. I would, I would stand out. I'd be a stranger there. Uh, perhaps closer for us in our experience in multicultural Australian, uh, in Australia are ethnic minorities. They capture this idea of exiles. Uh, we know a bit about it in multicultural Australia. There's a good chance that many here today come from migrant families or even overseas and are literally temporary visitors in Australia. See, think about this for a minute. When you're in the ethnic minority, you have some decisions to make about how you're going to relate to the society that you're temporarily staying in. And you've got a number of options, really. Uh, you can more change. You can become exactly like the society that you live in, can't you? You absorb its ways and values, you leave, actually leave the old ways consciously behind and take on the ways of the new. Be, be as much like the society as possible. You can more, assimilate, blend in. You could withdraw with another strategy. Uh, you set up the old, the old way, in the midst of the new situation and protect it and guard it, adopt as a key value preservation of cultural identity. That's another way you can go. Well, you could try and reform the society, so you neither have to morph or withdraw. So you stand up for a society where you don't have to either blend in or completely withdraw. This issue of how to relate to the society around has exercised Christians for many centuries. And those different approaches have all been taken from time to time in different situations. At times Christians have been quite nominal in their religion. Uh, having Christianity as a nice add-on to life. And actually it's been quite hard to tell the difference between the church and the world other times, withdrawal has actually been the preferred option. You think, well, totally cutting off from the world, as in the monasteries, or being a, a little enclave like the Amish. At other times, the church has sought to reform the world to be more Christian, such as in the times of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, I guess if you're a Christian here today, my question to you 
as we come to God's word on this matter of difference, what is your default approach to relating to the world around you? What's the one that you naturally go to? Does it resemble one of those three options? Do you more? Lend in as much as possible? Do you withdraw? Or reform? Try to reform it? Or is it something else? Or a mixture? What's your default approach to relating to the world around you? And as we continue in this letter, Peter encourages his readers to live differently by dealing with a key issue. That's the issue of identity. I'm told that the dilemma facing many second and third generations of migrant families is exactly this, the the identity dilemma. The question, who am I? So, for example, am I Australian Chinese? Or am I Chinese Australian? Or am I just Australian? How do I think of myself, my identity? And Peter writes to remind these persecuted Christians of their identity. He tells them who they're to be and why. Who they're to be and why. Last week we heard how he told them about where they were headed and how they were going to get there. This week he focuses on identity, who they're to be and why. We're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 13-21 to start with to talk about the foundation of this difference. So much of our identity is tied up with our family story, isn't it? That's true to say. Uh, One of the regular speakers here, Andrew Cade, will often roll out his um, migrant story. His parents from Hungary came out escaping the communists and set up here with selling drink bottles and all that kind of stuff. And, but I think seriously, it, it, uh, he has this sense that it shaped him, that whole family story. Our identity is very much tied up with it. And the way Peter approaches this issue of Christian identity is drawing heavily on the family story. That story of God's involvement with his people in order to bless the whole world. This is the biggest story of them all. And that's the story which the Bible tells. We need to know a little bit about that story to understand or have any idea actually what Peter's talking about when he talks about Christian identity. We're going to do something very uh, difficult, that is tell the story of the whole Bible in four minutes. I've diagrammed it there so you've got pictures to follow along with. Uh, Under that context, Israel's exodus. This story sits in the background of what Peter has to say. He uses the same language, he draws on language from that story to explain what he means. We're represented in that diagram by, well it's hard to see, a little cartoon character with a very great big grin on his face. So just to the right of the cross and the tomb between, between that and Jesus revealed, that's where we are in this story. Post the time of Jesus, before the time when he was revealed as we saw last week. Just, a, just an overview of the plot. You see it moves from the whole world on the left hand side. The whole world created by God. Then it focuses in on a particular people, Israel. This story. This is, if you read the Bible this is the kind of story that we come through. Then it leads into one particular person, 
Jesus Christ. Then it moves back out again to the to a wider group of Jews and non-Jews, or what Peter would call Gentiles, to end with the whole of creation again. You see the movement of the plot. And last week we saw how Peter opened his letter with a focus on that last part of the story, the right hand end of the story if you like. Looking to that glorious future when Jesus will be revealed based on that central event in the centre of the plot, right at the heart of the plot, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Looking forward to that glorious future while looking back at the resurrection of Jesus which guarantees it. So he's focused on that last half of, of the story. And today, in, in chapter 1 and 2, Peter particularly draws on the section of the letter that's the, that's the first half of the bit between Abraham and Jesus. See that little bit? It's got a couple of notations on it. That's the part he focuses in. It's found in the first five books of the Bible. And he gets, what Peter does is gets his readers to understand their present situation by drawing on their family story, particularly that part. Remember, they're Jewish Christians. This is literally their family story. These are their ancestors. It's also true of any Christians. As you can see, it's now Jew and Gentile in Christ that this story belongs to. The lead up, of course, is creation. God makes a good world full of life and peace, a place to be dependent on him. But the pinnacle of that creation, humans, the human, arrogantly asserts independence from God which results in a deep brokenness in the world. That's that part of that funnel, that story. A deep brokenness. Humans are not in the right, right relationship with God, they're not in the right relationship with each other, they're not in the right relationship with the creation. Death has become a normal part of existence. That's the introduction to this part of the story that Peter draws on. And God's purpose to restore and renew the world begins with a promise to one man, a man called Abraham. Those promises are to give him many descendants and make from him a great nation. They're promises of land in which to live. They're promises to bless the whole world through his people. Sure enough, he does have many descendants, but due to various circumstances, they all end up in Egypt, in slavery, outside the land that's been promised to them. But again, because of the promise, God miraculously rescues them from that slavery in an event known as the Exodus. You may have heard, perhaps, along the way, some of the episodes of that rescue with Pharaoh and Moses, great plagues. My favourite is the plague of frogs, I think. So God displays his power to Pharaoh, partly in judgement on his oppression of the people of Israel, but also to show Pharaoh who is God. The parting of the Red Sea. It's a great rescue from slavery. But it's not just a rescue out of a situation, it's a rescue towards a new situation. In particular, the land promised to Abraham, what became known as, funnily enough, the promised land. Uh, That's the area around modern day Israel. So they're rescued out of Egypt and start this journey towards Israel, the promised land. And on the way to that land they cross the wilderness and God spends some time with them at a place called Mount Sinai on that journey. God meets with their leader Moses and makes a covenant or a pact or an agreement with this people. He tells them that he has chosen them to be a people who are special, 
set apart for him. In the polytheistic world of the ancient Near East, the true and living God who made the universe reveals himself to them and says, I want you to be my special people. What's more, he lays out the stipulations of that that relationship, in that contract. What it will look like for them to be his people, for him to be their God. And when you flick through the first five books of the Bible, you'll notice how much of it is taken up with these kind of laws or covenant stipulations. In particular, when they got to the promised land, they were to be different to the nations around them. The nations who had who had many gods and did not acknowledge the true and living God of Israel. You see the goal is set up, this agreement with the nation at Sinai, you're going to be my people, I will be your God. I'm taking you to this place where you're to be my people, set apart for me, different to those around you. The goal was for God's people to be in a place set aside for them by God, with God himself dwelling amongst them. That was a great vision. And they were to serve and approach God in the ways which he had laid out for them. Even if that brought them into conflict with the nations around. It's that story that I've just told you that Peter draws on heavily to, to uh, explain and encourage the Christians who are the other side of Jesus Christ from that particular part of the story. That's what he uses to say, this is who you are, this is who you are to be and why in the situation of conflict that they find themselves in. Verses 13 to 17 of chapter 1 introduce a key category to understand who they are, who they are to be and why. Have a look at it there. Therefore prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. It's there in verse 15, this key identity issue, there to be holy holy what comes to mind with that word holy Uh, maybe it's some kind of formal austere ritual that comes to mind, I think you pronounce that holy heavy heavy maybe that's what comes to mind when you talk about holy some religious ritual fairly formal but the key idea in the word holy is actually uniqueness, set-apartness, if that's a word. It's certainly an idea. Set-apartness. That's why, this is, that's why it's relevant to the issue of difference, you see. That's what the word holy is about. Being different, being unique, being set-apart. We get a better understanding of what it is when we see the reasons that Peter gives for this holiness, the why of who they're to be. Verse 13, the first why is because of hope. He draws, he says, therefore, in view of what I've just talked about, which we talked about last week, this great hope you have, this great future guaranteed by God, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. 
Don't live this way, carried along by the appetites and desires, like that flood of dissipation he talked about in chapter 4 in that verse I read at the start. Don't be carried along by that. Instead, live this way for this reason. Be holy as he who called you is holy. Be holy because God is. One of the fundamental things to say about God is that he is holy. Not not so much as we often think a moral being, we think holy equals morality. That doesn't capture the the idea of uh, holiness. It certainly might be included in it. But God is holy in that he is utterly, utterly, utterly unique. There is no one like him. He is creator. Everything else is created. You see, there are only two categories of existence. That which is made and that which made it. It's not primarily a moral kind of category. It's to do with the utter uniqueness of God. The God of the Bible is holy. He has no rivals. In everything he is and does, he is holy. He's not just a bigger and better version of us. We are creatures. He is creator. And that's how he backs it up with a quote from that story that I just talked to you about, from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is actually given while they're at Mount Sinai, where all those covenants, this stipulation are being given out. And a key refrain of that, of, of that time on Mount Sinai is, Be holy because I am holy. When he sets up his people to fulfil his purposes for the whole world, these promises that he's made to Abraham to bless the whole nation, bless all the nations, to have a land, to have descendants, as he sets all that up, he says, the key thing about you, because you are my people and I am your God, you are to be holy, you are to be unique like I am. But in one sense you can't be exactly the same as God that way because he's utterly unique. You can't be creator, you can't be holy in the same sense as that. But because he is the one true living God as opposed to all the other gods around, they're to actually be set apart for him. They're to be holy. And many of the laws, if you read Leviticus, it can be quite mind-numbing. There's all sorts of laws and practices there. This refrain keeps coming through, be holy because I am holy. They all, many of them are, seem quite arbitrary, like what you can make your clothes out of, the things you can eat. Many of them are designed to illustrate and help the people practice this reality that they are to be different from the nations around. They are to be holy, they're set apart by God. When you have a unique God, you expect his people to be different. It's because of God that these people be holy. But it's not just a God who is out there, uh, a sort of impersonal being, an impersonal force. I mean, you know that from the story, he's actually interacted with his people and with his world. But he's done something to make them his people. In that story, in Israel's story, what he did was rescue them out of slavery in Egypt. Brilliant rescue. It wasn't because they were clever, it wasn't because they were powerful. It was purely by the power and grace of God that they were brought out of slavery to Egypt and brought to the promised land. 
And Peter goes on to give another reason why they're holy, why they're to be holy, because they've been bought with a price. These Christians too have this great salvation event in their story, which is to affect how they live now. Verse 18, you know that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with, precious, with, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set in God. The idea of a ransom is that you pay a price to buy somebody back. It was from the world of slave markets and trading. So the the way you got out of slavery was either to die or somebody paid a price to your owner to bring you out, to pay, pay you out of it. Peter reminds them, you, these people have been bought with a price. And that's the way how he explains that price. He talks about the blood of Christ, but he uses terms again, drawing on that story, that Israel story. See, when God rescued them out of Egypt, one of the, the straw that broke the camel's back in Pharaoh letting them go was this awful thing where all the firstborn sons in Egypt would die one night. That's what God said, you don't let my people go. This is what will happen. He didn't let them go, and that's exactly what happened. However, God made provision for the Israelites so that their firstborn son, sons didn't need to die. And it was they were to, to get a lamb without blemish. He uses almost exactly the same words here. Slaughter it, sprinkle the blood above their doorposts. And in the night when all the firstborn in Egypt died, their, their houses would be passed over their firstborn would live and they would be rescued. And those are the terms that Peter chooses to talk about what's happened with Jesus Christ's death on a cross. He says, you've been bought out of that old way of life, that slavery to sin, you Christians. And you've been bought with this amazing price. Self silver and gold, that's, that fades away, that doesn't last. It's with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect or blemish. Have you bought with the price? This, this God hasn't just sort of called down to the say, be different because I am. They're in that situation because he has done this wonderful thing, this wonderful saving, this wonderful rescue to allow them to be his people and for him to be their God. This great rescue for Christians is the death of Jesus Christ. That's how you come into this relationship with the Holy God. There's no other way. The precious blood of Christ. He says, God has paid this price. He's bought you. Imagine that. That's how precious you are to him. His own son's death. That's how you get into relationship with the Holy God. That's why they're to be holy like he is. That's why they show the family likeness, if you like. He's done this amazing thing for them. He's brought them into a relationship. They're to live out that relationship with the Holy God. So he gives some good reasons for holiness, for this difference. There's the hope that they have, they're headed somewhere, and that really motivates for the present as they prepare and be disciplined. 
There's God himself, the God whom they follow and serve is a holy God. They're to be different. That has always been the way with God's people. What's more, that God has brought them with the ultimate cross. It's here where the story for Christians is different to that of Israel. It's not a land without blemish. It's God's own son, Jesus Christ. That's the price that's been paid. The job has been done finally and fully in Jesus Christ. So be holy, because I am holy. And it works its way out. Again, it's one of those themes that keeps coming out in the, in the book. You uh, sort of skim through. There's a real difference for Christians. One of the biggest ones that strikes you as you go through is that Christians do not repay evil for evil or abuse for, for abuse. We'll see why next week. But on the contrary, they repay with a blessing. It's for that that you were called. There's a deep difference for these people. Do not repay evil for evil, abuse for abuse. Whatever the reaction to the situation, it's not going to be fight. Not in the same way as the world might fight anyway. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Even if you do suffer from doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, do not be intimidated, but in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an accountant for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. There's an engagement in this difference. Again, they're not to react the same way, but they're to engage with gentle, respectful answers, giving account for the hope that they have. When they're maligned, they're to stay in good conduct so that, uh, so that Christ may, be not, may not be put to shame. And as we saw in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, the verse I read out to start with, you have already spent enough time in doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revels, carousing and lawless idolatry. The whole basis of that is this command to, I guess, fulfil the story of Israel, you Christians. Be holy because I am holy. Be different. You won't live and behave the same way. You've been bought with a cross. You belong to God. Notice it's not a withdrawn difference. It's an engaging difference. We'll look at that in the next next week particularly. It's not just that you withdraw completely. There's actually engagement. There's answering. There's living good lives among those who, who malign you. He goes on to a very important theme. Uh, of holiness that is God's holy community he describes it in a couple of ways one is a family and one is uh, God's people or a temple we'll have uh, mainly have time to look at the first one God's family and not so much as the second one although the second one is important so in verses 22 starting from where we finished just then verse 22 of chapter 1 through to 10 he reminds them that they're a holy community. This, who are you and why? Who are you to be and why? You're to be holy because God is holy. There will require difference. But you're to be a holy community, God's holy community. There's a corporateness to this holiness. 
Firstly, he reminds them that they belong to God's family. 22 to 2 verse 3. Now that you have purified yourself by obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual, mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not a perishable but an imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. We're back in a familiar theme now. He talks about new birth. You have been given new birth in the kind of area. There in verse 23, you have been born anew. He says, you've been born anew by, in a particular way. You've been born again. It happens through how? The enduring word of God. Again, I think he's making some uh, quite conscious contrast this time with the history of Israel and with these Christians. See, the big thing about Israel was you were in Israel by your human birth. It was to do with your blood, your, who your ancestors, who your father was, brought you into Israel. And Peter's quite constantly saying, now that Christ has come, now you've been bought as God's people with this Christ, of Christ's death, you've actually been born again in a different way. It's no longer on, based on your bloodlines. It comes about through this birth through the word of God. And he particularly wants to make this contrast between a human seed, a, imper- a perishable seed, and an imperishable one. He's broadening the idea of birth to include conception. I think we're allowed to talk about it. The seed is the human seed, like the, the semen, actually the sperm working towards the egg. I think he's quite costly drawing on that. There's a human way of birth and there's an imperishable one. And there's a contrast. One is temporary and one is lasting. There's, there's one that's from flesh and one that's from the Lord's word. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting there from a prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, as part of a grand announcement of God's rescue of his homeless and oppressed people. And how do they know he will do that? They know it because he's promised that he will. His word stands. Human frailty, human... Well, we know all about human promises at the moment, with the elections coming up. It says, human promises, well... They may or they may not come to be. Not so with the utterly reliable, permanent word of God. And what is that word in verse 25? It's the good news, the gospel that was announced to you. That message about Jesus, that great price God has paid to buy them to be his people. That great message about the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees their future and the revelation of Jesus. Through that message that they're born again, as they respond to and receive and entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus that they've heard about, they are born again. And he continues on the metaphor to talk about the pure milk. He says, Rid yourselves therefore of all malice and all guile and sincerity, envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by you may grow into salvation, if, you, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You don't just start by God's word, he says. You continue. It's like baby's food. We have these fat, hungry babies. So I know all about babies craving for milk. 
it's when they want it, they really want it. It's got to be now. He's saying, this word of what God has done for you in Jesus, this message, is to continue to nurture and grow you. You don't move away from it. And what's the result of this new birth, the so? Well, they're to love in truth. They're to have a genuine affection for each other. Did you notice that? Now you have purified yourself by being the truth, so you have a mutual love. Love one another deeply from the heart. That is, when you're brought into the people of God, you're brought into, by this birth, you're brought into a whole new family. A family of brotherly and sisterly love. It says when you were born again, you've got that family. Now that you have that mutual love, not saying it's a maybe or that you decide on that, because of this birth, you have this relationship with others who are in Christ. He's saying, live it out. Love each other deeply from the heart. There's to be an earnestness, a heartfelt quality about their love for each other. This is not just doing good things for them, like grin and bear them. This is a genuine, heartfelt love for others. In 2 verse 1, as I read out, he tells them what their relationships are not to be like. This is what it looks like to be part of God's holy family. They take off a whole range of unloving attitudes and behaviours. Like you take off a stained shirt at the end of the day. So all malice, that's any kind of harmful intent or action, that spite which attempts to damage others, that doesn't belong in this family. Guile, any trickery, falsehood, half-truth, manipulation, doesn't belong in the family. Insincerity or hypocrisy, no putting on masks or play-acting with each other. We deal straight. Envy, there's no begrudging of the good when it occurs to somebody else. Slander, speech which deliberately is slandered to harm another's reputation. That is not on. That doesn't belong to fellow newborns in the family. There's the earnest love from the heart. All those things are relationship breakers. You can see how we're starting to get a picture of a different holy community. I tell you what, a community that lives that way, that lives without guile, insincerity, envy, slander, malice, is a very different kind of community. We're not just talking about middle class niceness. We're talking about a community that's been brought together by something outside themselves, by this new birth they had from God, to be a loving community that loves deeply from the heart. That's what these people are part of. This is who you are. This is who you are to be. This loving community in the midst of this difficulty and problem. He goes on to talk to them about they're like a spiritual temple, uh, a people temple, which we don't have time to look at particularly. One of the great goals of going to the promised land was having a place where God would dwell. And Peter's saying, you people together are that place, that place set apart for the service of God, like a temple. You fulfil that. Israelites, they had a physical one in the promised land. What that is now is you people together, that temple from God. So what does this say about difference? Well, I want to ask you again, if you're a Christian, what is your stance, your default stance to the world around you? What this passage does at least is challenge the idea of total assimilation for Christians. It challenges that deeply. That temptation 
to stay comfortable and just blend in. This offers a deep challenge to that. You have a holy God, be holy, be different. It'll affect your behaviour. You won't join in sometimes. And particularly it'll affect your relationships. See, Christians belong to a holy, utterly unique God who's graciously rescued them out of the old way of life, an old way where they're enslaved to desires and appetites. That's a reality. God has done that in, the, in, the, in Jesus Christ. And that reality, that it's that God that's done it, and he's done it that way, will reflect how we live. Plagiarism. It's not on for Christians. It's tempting, isn't it? And you'll feel different. Copying friends' assignments. You'll feel different. And what's more, you may get a hard time. I have a friend who decided not to go to some morning teas at his work because it, it ended up being this huge gossip session about the leaders in the organisation. He just couldn't work out a way to be there for it to be positive. He used to join in and he was concerned about that. He stopped going. There may be a time when he goes back and is able not to join in, but for him, he had a holy God who purchased him with this precious blood of Jesus. And a friend who's a, a, a partner in a major, major accounting firm was asked to sign a contract which he thought was a bit dodgy. It was important for the company, worth millions of dollars. He said no. Imagine where that left him. He had a holy God who's rescued him with a great price, a precious gift of Jesus. I have homosexual friends who have homosexual feelings and have chosen not to act, act on them because they belong to God. They'll take the pain of that because they have a holy God who's bought them with the precious blood of Jesus. But notice it's not a smug, kind of arrogant, disengaged difference that we're talking about. There will be definite difference. Assimilation is not an option. You can't just keep blending in. There will be times when you need to be different, says Peter. Excluded lives lived among those who are Christian. Good lives lived among those who are Christian. We'll fill that out next week. But it's an engaged difference. Not an aloof, not a smug, not a point the finger saying you're not as good as us, not a holier than thou kind of difference. We're only where we are because of God's grace, not because we're particularly better than anybody else. It particularly will have its working out, this holiness, this difference in how we live, live as Christians. Christian communities will be the sort of places that will have people part of it that no, no other community will have part of it. There'll be, there'll be a whole range of kinds of people in them because they have a holy God who's bought them with the precious blood of Jesus. They, with other Christians, we don't have a choice as to whether we love from the heart. We're brought into that position by what God has done. Our communities will, will, will actually reflect that. We'll be welcoming to anyone who names Christ. Next week we'll see how we'll also be loving to those around but particularly as God's holy community, his family. We, we don't relate to each other on performance or looks or intelligence 
We don't welcome in people on the basis of what they have to offer us. We don't have fellowship as demanders. We have fellowship by God's grace. He's put us in the family. We relate to people as members of the family. Mutual love, deeply from the heart. Peter kind of gives the ultimate wind, wind up for these people as being fulfilling the, uh, the, the story of Israel. In verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, you know those people back then with God's purposes to be a blessing to the whole world, to bless them and to bless the whole world through them? He says, this is you in Christ now. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, why? In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This grand purpose of God's people, fulfilled in Christians, both those who are Jews and those who are not, to declare the goodness of God. Not just trying to persuade people to be Christian, but it's an overflow of this brilliant thing that God has done where to be a people that declare and celebrate the wonderful act of God in calling us out of darkness into light. Let's pray. Father, we know that at times being different is uncomfortable. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember who we are to be and why. We thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ, for his precious blood that has brought us to be your people. We praise you as the Holy God, the utterly unique one. Please strengthen us to serve you all our days.